Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give better help a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 101, Thomas the Slav. Let's turn our minds back to the beginning of the century for a moment. The general logothete, Nicephorus, gets a bunch of high officials together and eases Irene out of power. He orders the army to gather in Anatolia, under the leadership of Vardan Turkus. Once assembled, the troops decide they have no interest in serving one of Irene's mandarins. They'd rather follow their commander, brave, honourable Vardan. The troops march north and west to the Bosphorus and wait to see if the citizens of the capital agree with their choice. In our interview with Antony Cordelis, he described this phenomenon as being like a modern election. The army didn't know Nicephorus very well, but they knew Vardan. They were hoping that if the Logothete was not popular in Constantinople, and the citizenry were looking for an alternative, that they could now present one. As Professor Cordelis and I also discussed, the people of New Rome would almost always have the final say in these matters. And the city was, at that stage, content with the continuity which Nicephorus represented, and Vardan's rebellion spluttered to a halt. When these confrontations reached such a stalemate, often what would come next would be the defections. The candidate in the stronger position would make offers to the other side's supporters. This is exactly what happened to Vardan Turkus. Two of his closest allies, Leo the Armenian and Michael of Amorium, accepted promotions from Nicephorus 
and abandoned their patron. On this occasion, with his army melting away, Vardan himself cut a deal with the emperor. But at other times, as we saw with the end of Justinian II, for example, the losing contender is sacrificed by his own men to save their skins. However it happens, the ignominious end for the loser casts him as a usurper who tried to upset the natural order, and the victor becomes God's chosen emperor. The events of the struggle now cast as a failed challenge to his rightful rule. But what if this typical narrative is unable to form? What if neither side wins? And neither side seems to be God's choice. Today, we'll see the damage that can be done when that very scenario plays out. When a battle for the throne looks less like an election and more like a true civil war. When we left the narrative at the end of episode 99... Leo V's broken corpse was being loaded onto a ship, and Michael of Amorium was hailed emperor in chains. This brutal assassination had no legal basis. There was no crisis precipitating an intervention, and Michael had no convincing claim to be emperor. In the court of public opinion, there seemed to be no good reason for the change of ruler. We have no way of knowing what version of events was communicated to the public. People knew that Leo had been murdered. His body had been displayed on its way to the harbour. But how they felt about Michael, we don't know. The message coming from the civil service and the imperial bodyguards was nothing to see here. This was no big deal, let's all get on board with it. The people on the capital streets, then, had little reason to riot. Their patrons seemed content. No one had lost their job. I guess everything is okay. Quite how this same message was communicated to the provinces, we don't know. Probably, before an official version of events could be slapped together, the news was already being gossiped along the highways towards Amorium. Once it reached the headquarters of the Anatolikon, it was received very badly. Their former commander, Leo, had been murdered. Right. In that case, they would choose another emperor. They would march on the capital and force him onto the throne. This illegal and unjust murder was a crime and unacceptable. Now, you might be thinking, why did they care so much? Just because Leo was their former commander? Well, let's back up again. It was only seven years earlier that they had elevated the Armenian. Seven years. So most of the men serving in Anatolia remembered this quite well. Not only had they hailed their commander, but they'd followed him into the city, seen him crowned received gold coins from him as they were released back to their homes. Leo was very much their emperor. He was one of them. They had made him 
now they would make his successor. Fueling this passionate feeling were two things. First off, I hear Michael is now emperor. Michael of Amorium. You might think that this would mollify the situation somewhat, but Michael was apparently not popular with his former charges and was widely assumed to have played Judas to Leo's Jesus. Second, the change of regime was viewed by those in the provinces as a capital-centric coup. Remember, these men had elevated Leo because of the incompetence of imperial leadership in the Balkans. They had watched the disaster of Michael Ragave's leadership, and some of them had even been present at Pliska when that damn fool Nicephorus led so many good men to their graves. More than that, Nicephorus had increased their taxes. He'd come poking around their homes demanding back payments. He'd uprooted good men and forced them to move to Europe. Even before him, Irene and her son had overseen humiliating defeats to the Arabs. No, 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 no. The men of the Anatolicon were done being dictated to by the pampered elites on the Bosphorus. No more would those cruel and cold bureaucrats maintain their icy grip on power. Another son of the provinces would rise up and avenge poor Leo and restore the empire to the true Romans. Grasping the moment and channeling his men's anger was the second in command of the theme. He told them that he was ready and able and they hailed him as their new leader. This man was, of course, the third of Vardan Turkus's comrades, the only one who didn't take a deal from Nicephorus, the one who stayed loyal to his commander, the one who was left out in the cold while his friends climbed the imperial ladder. Thomas the Slav. Thomas was born in the Armenia Khan to a Roman family of Slavic descent. He was a little older than Michael or Leo, and may have been in his 60s when he was hailed emperor. It's not clear what happened to his career after the exile of Vardan Turkus. We don't know if he went on the run to avoid imperial wrath, or if he simply returned to the ranks, but with no hope of further promotion. Either way, his old friend Leo had not forgotten him, and he was made second in command of the Anatolikon when the Armenian ascended the throne. We don't know what happened to his strategos, but Thomas's personal friendship with Leo probably sealed his choice as the new Vasilevs. Thomas could proclaim himself to be Leo's avenger, ready to strike down Michael for this heinous crime. Thomas did have other qualities which recommended him. He was, of course, an experienced officer who'd been leading his men for the past seven years. In that time, he'd gained a reputation for being a good man, for being brave, clever, and charming. Thomas was the kind of man men like to follow. Something this civil war will certainly bear out. His silver hair marked him out as an elder statesman, a respectable candidate to be emperor. A bad leg, which caused him to limp, spoke of someone who'd been through the wars and was persevering 
for a righteous cause. The sources suggest that though we remember him as the Slav, his ethnicity was of little interest to his contemporaries, in part because he would have appeared perfectly Roman in speech and lifestyle, but also because Slav settlers in Anatolia were common. Constantine V's patriarch, Nicetus, was of Slav descent, so this was no innovation. As I mentioned, the righteous indignation brewing in the provinces was not shared by those in the capital. I've just given you the pro-Thomas manifesto. Let's just try and imagine the viewpoint of the Michael camp. The people of Constantinople were, after all, of a different breed. Wasn't it they who had withstood the siege of 717? Who had stood between the armies of Islam and the kingdom of God? Had not their families been running the bureaucracy for generations? Didn't they have a right to say who governed the empire? Leo had threatened their way of life. His countrymen were filling important posts, his family members too. He'd even restored iconoclasm, sending the most respectable clergymen on earth into dishonourable exiles. There were reports of beatings and whippings, who knows who else he'll get rid of next? If we don't act now, we may lose our chance. Again, it's a slanted view, but hopefully one which touches on some truth behind Leo's fall. It's entirely possible that many people did not approve of Michael's elevation, but kept quiet for obvious reasons. Those behind the plot may have thought that Michael was rather a good choice. As a former companion of Leo's, perhaps the provincials wouldn't be too upset. He was a soldier, after all. He commanded the excubitors. They were hardly elevating Artemius the secretary. But their choice was not well received. Michael's stammer and strict morals stood in contrast to Thomas's easy authority. It may not have mattered who took Leo's place. News of his murder sparked an uprising immediately. Once news of Thomas's elevation reached the capital, each side dug in and became more committed to their cause. There would be no compromise, only war. Yes, that sound effect signals the change from December 820 to January 821. Remember that Leo was murdered on Christmas Day, so it was probably in January that Thomas was elevated, and certainly only then that the rebellion was understood in the capital. The news that Thomas was coming to avenge Leo's murder meant that Michael had to double down on his protestations of innocence. He had to present himself as the continuer of Leo's policies. After all, that's what a friend and colleague of Leo, who was horrified at his murder, would do. This, of course, meant that Michael really was committed to protecting the officials already in place, because Leo had appointed them. They, in turn, clung firmly to their new master, because Thomas was not likely to be friendly to them. 
the Slav could hardly trust the men who turned the other cheek at Leo's murder, and so could be expected to purge most of them if he took charge. So even if you were not a Michael fan, as long as you were established in a civil, military, or ecclesiastical post near the capital, then he was your choice for emperor. This solidarity amongst the elite was to prove crucial, and only confirm to Thomas's partisans that they had no friends at Constantinople, and the city must be taken by force. And one of the keys to understanding this civil war is to remember that all of this was happening at once. Michael's elevation was not announced to all corners of the empire, and then Thomas announced his alternative candidacy, and everyone had time to think through their options. No, instead the news of Leo's murder, and Michael and Thomas's competing claims, hit everyone at once. Army commanders and city governors across Anatolia were being asked for their allegiance, but didn't know which side was in a stronger position, which, as we discussed earlier, was often a decisive factor in these conflicts. Add to all of that, the murder took place in the middle of winter, so communications were slower. No one could really do much in terms of war-making until spring and therefore a lot of troops were on their farms with their families and had no idea what was happening. This gave Michael a few months to wait to see really how serious this rebellion was. In the meantime, he could focus on washing his hands thoroughly. Rather than confiscate Leo's property, he left most of it in the hands of the Armenians' relatives and gently eased them out of the limelight. Though most of them proved keen to get out of harm's way, Leo's nephew Gregory angrily chewed Michael out for what he'd done. The emperor was forced to have Gregory imprisoned on the Greek island of Skyros, but took no other measures against his kin. To further promote unity, Michael allowed all recent political exiles to return to the capital. This, of course, opened the door to the one group who were delighted to hear that Leo was dead, the Iconophiles. Theodore raced out of his prison in the Thracision and headed north, sending letters pell-mell to the palace and to his friends, hoping that orthodoxy would be restored by God's new vice-regent. God himself seemed to be in favour of this when a few days later the patriarch Theodotus passed away. Why, Nicephorus, the former archbishop, was still alive and living in exile nearby. Michael could restore him to the pulpit, along with the icons, all in one glorious moment. But by now, the emperor was getting anxious about Thomas. He couldn't afford to reverse such a key imperial policy and risk being perceived as opposing Leo's legacy. So, like Leo before him, Michael sought a compromise. He actually wrote to Nicephorus and asked him if he was to be restored to the patriarchal throne, 
would he be willing to put aside all three of the previous councils and take no official position on the icons? This blanket of silence might allow the emperor to keep everyone quiet, but after his outspoken defence of the icons, Nicephorus couldn't sign up to this. Michael wrote to Theodore, suggesting that he meet and debate the issue with the iconoclasts. But we've been down this road before. The Studite monk came to see the emperor, but refused to negotiate. Theodore was clear. To debate with heretics was wrong. To submit to the judgment of laymen, who Michael would appoint to chair the debate, was wrong. To accept mutual toleration was wrong. Theodore once again asked that the Pope be allowed to decide the matter. Michael couldn't do this, nor could he continue to argue with Theodore. He banished the iconophiles from the capital. He made it clear that outside the walls they could do what they liked, but in the city, ecclesiastical policy would remain unchanged, and he forbid public discussion of the icons. He still needed to appoint a new patriarch, though. The obvious candidate was John the Grammarian, iconoclast-in-chief, but recognising that this would inflame the sensibilities of the iconophiles, he chose Antony Casimates instead. He was a respected bishop, though an iconoclast nonetheless. John was made tutor to Michael's son, the future emperor Theophilus, ensuring that the young man would grow up with no love for the icons. With this out of the way, Michael could focus properly on the civil war. Only two of his theme commanders were expressing complete loyalty to his cause. Catechilas, his cousin and commander of the Obsikion, and Olbianus of the Armeniacon. Soon afterwards, when troops began mustering in the spring, the situation became clearer. The Bacalarian the Kiviriotun and the new Paphlagonian theme had all gone over to Thomas's side. Obviously, you can find all these on the map. The emperor ordered Olbianus to try and extinguish Thomas's rebellion before it could truly get going. But when the two sides met in battle, it was Thomas who emerged victorious. You see, things were going really well for the Slav, Using his charm, or perhaps intimidation, he'd begun to corral the provincial officials to his cause. The local tax collectors had begun their work the previous September, and had not yet forwarded their receipts to Constantinople. They now agreed to hand over the cash to Thomas. So once the neighbouring themes joined in, the Slav established his own treasury and was able to pay his troops. He could now send word to men across Anatolia that if they joined him, they would be fully compensated for their trouble. The Armeniacon troops retreated after the battle into the mountains. So instead of pursuing them, Thomas marched north and occupied the new ducat of Chaldea. Now I've added Paphlagonia and Chaldea to the map, but Chaldea was the northeast corner of the Armeniacon, 
and therefore the northeast corner of Anatolia, if you're looking at the map in your mind. That's where the city of Trebizond lies, and it obviously borders Armenia. As Thomas marched around the ducat, shaking hands and recruiting men, an Arab raid smashed its way into the Anatolikon. Confusingly, these were not the caliph's men. As I've mentioned on several occasions, things were really chaotic in the caliphate. Let's very briefly turn our eyes east to appreciate the situation. I'll go into this in detail at the end of the century. But when Harun al-Rashid died, his two sons began a civil war which lasted the best part of a decade. The year before Leo was murdered, Abdullah al-Mamun finally took Baghdad and established central control. He was now able to turn his attention to his western provinces. Egypt was split between two different sets of rebels. Azerbaijan was suffering a serious uprising by the non-Muslim Kuramites, and Syria was in the hands of a Qaisi chieftain named Nasser. It was Nasser's men who'd raided Byzantium. They were simply continuing their traditional way of acquiring easy loot. Thomas looked at this situation and saw an opportunity. If he was going to unite Anatolia behind his claim to the throne, then he needed peace on the border. His strongest base of support was the Anatolikon, and if those men were going to march to Constantinople, they would need to know that their homes would be safe. With Nasser's men holding Syria, getting messages to the caliph would not be easy. Nor did Thomas want to bog his men down in serious fighting. So, he pushed his men east into Armenia. As you'll recall, this is the route which Heraclius took all those years ago, meaning that lying ahead of Thomas was Theodosiopolis, the former capital of Roman Armenia, and beyond that lay Azerbaijan. The Arab governor of Armenia had already been defeated by the Kuramites and so was in no position to seriously resist the Roman advance. Thomas seized the city and was thus able to get messages down the Tigris to Baghdad. The caliph, al-Mahmun, was receptive to this suggestion. He could concentrate on restoring order, safe in the knowledge that the Romans were busy killing each other. We don't know exactly what deal the two men agreed to. It's probable that al-Mahmun wanted Thomas to pay a tribute of some kind once he was victorious. Perhaps the nominal submission which Nicephorus had agreed to, or even an, a large annual fee, as Irene had. Thomas, though, was in a decent bargaining position. If he was going to become the caliph's man, then he'd like some reinforcements for his expedition. So, he was allowed to put word out across Armenia and the borderlands that he was hiring mercenaries. The sources debate exactly who came to fight for him, uh, but most likely Armenians and Caucasians, mostly Christians, signed up. But it's possible that Arabs, Persians, or other Cilician residents joined in too. Uh, this may have included Bedouin Arabs, who would have been a controversial site in Anatolia. 
But al-Mahmun had just won a civil war. It's possible that partisans of his brother or some of Nasser's rebels decided that life in Romania was a safer option for them. These men, if they did indeed join, would have been recruited a few months later when Thomas sealed the deal by travelling south to Antioch. With Arab permission, the self-proclaimed emperor entered the former capital of the Roman East and was crowned by the patriarch Job. This extraordinary ceremony may have been suggested by al-Mahmun. Perhaps he felt there was propaganda value in being able to crown his own emperor. But then again, perhaps Thomas thought that approval from a recognized archbishop would help his candidacy in the eyes of the Roman people. He would now be able to wear imperial regalia, which had been bestowed upon him by one of God's representatives. Crossing back into his theme, then, Thomas was building a position of strength. He brought with him mercenary reinforcements and the trappings of royal power. Determined to fully establish a coherent regime, he also adopted a successor, a man we know little about, who he crowned Caesar and renamed Constantius. Remember that Thomas was in his 60s and knew he might not last a strenuous campaign. Now, this is where things get complicated, and I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but let's just add one more thing. As far as we can tell, a rumour was spread by Thomas's agents to further strengthen his cause outside of his home base. The rumour was that Thomas the Slav was nothing of the sort. That was just a cover. Really, he was Constantine the Sixth. Now, you all know who Constantine the Sixth was. He was the son of Irene. He was the grandson of Constantine the Fifth. He was the boy who couldn't quite let go of his mother until the day she had him blinded and left to die in the palace. Of course, that event is shrouded in mystery. We don't know if he died instantly, uh, sometime later, or actually carried on living into the reign of Nicephorus. But if we're in the dark, think how people in Anatolia felt. I suspect most of them simply picked up a coin one day and thought, huh, where did that man go off this coin? It's just Irene on both sides now. What does that mean? Naturally, rumours about Constantine's fate spread far and wide, but who knows what wild speculation had done to them once they'd travelled a few hundred miles. Was it so ridiculous to think that Constantine had actually escaped? Got on a boat? Fled to the caliphate? Only now able to muster an army and reclaim his throne? Yes, yes, it was ridiculous, of course. But the lack of information surrounding his demise made it vaguely plausible. Constantine's fall had come in 797, when he was about 26, So here we are in 821, when the emperor in exile would have been about 50. Anyone able to do the maths would look at the clearly 60-year-old Thomas and figure out that this was not the case. But in an illiterate world with so much misinformation about, it seems 
this was believed by some. We don't know how seriously this rumour was promoted as truth. Some suggest it was taken up as a semi-official claim, and hence the choice of Constantius as the name of Thomas's heir. This, of course, recalled the first Constantine and the son who succeeded him. So, just to recap, Leo was murdered on Christmas Day 820. The first few months of the new year were taken up with each side assessing how much support they were likely to receive. Once spring arrived and troops could be mobilised, Thomas's forces had pushed the troops of the Armenia Con back into the mountains. Then he'd gone to the Caliphate and built a regime which he hoped he could present to the people of Constantinople to convince them to abandon Michael. The position for the man in the Imperial Palace was looking shaky. None of Michael's attempts to lure men onto his side had succeeded. As Thomas's force moved west, the Thracesians, who had so far not declared for either side, chose the Slav. This was a huge moment. If the Thracesians had opted for Michael, then the emperor could have kept the war in Anatolia. Any setbacks there would cause doubt amongst Thomas's ranks. Doubts lead to compromise. Men would almost certainly start to consider what deals they might cut with the man in possession of the capital. Instead, Thomas now had clear numerical superiority and a sense of momentum. Michael's control of the Tachmata and the Obsikion were important. They controlled the approaches to the Bosphorus, so the direct route to the capital was secure. But Thomas now had access to the Aegean and could approach the capital from a slightly different direction. This brings us back to one of the central issues of Byzantine history, the importance of fortress Constantinople. I mean, why couldn't Thomas at this point have marched on the Obsikion and then the Armeniacon and brought those themes under his control? He would at that point be the emperor of Anatolia, the heartland of the empire. In a way, this would have undermined Michael considerably. But the capital remained a source of legitimacy in itself. The whole empire ran through its streets. The miraculous survival from the siege of 717 had only underlined the sense that God would protect the Christian city. Inside the relics of the saints, the true cross, the icons of the Virgin, the patriarch, the palace, control of the city was both psychologically and strategically key to power. Thomas knew this, and more importantly, his men knew it. They understood that to become the undisputed emperor, you must sit on the throne. So even though controlling Anatolia would be theoretically powerful, Thomas had to move now to New Rome. The mercenaries he'd hired were probably expecting spoils. His regular troops were ready for one last trip to Europe to ensure that they would never have to go there again. Thomas probably feared that a long campaign would drain the enthusiasm which was currently carrying him forward. As if to make the point for me, Michael sent word from the palace that from September he was cutting the hearth tax, the per-head tax on citizens. This meant that loyal Romans would see a one-quarter reduction in their overall tax bill for the next year. And of course, by loyal citizens, 
He meant those living in the Obsikion and the Armeniacon. It was a clever move, an incentive for those themes to stay loyal, and a tempting offer for those in rebellion. Although it didn't break Thomas's coalition apart, it did signal one of the key differences between the two sides. Michael had access to the central treasury. He could afford to cut taxes in the short term, whereas Thomas needed every penny the provinces could spare if he was to keep his bid for power going. As autumn approached, both sides prepared for a siege. Very roughly, the imperial fleet, based at Constantinople, could perhaps call on a hundred ships. Not necessarily all of the highest quality. This compares to Thomas's control of the Kivuriotone fleet, who had about 70. So Thomas began building. He built warships, he built troop transports, he built siege engines. Back on the Bosphorus, Michael outfitted his fleet, dragged his counter-siege weapons to the top of the land walls, and reinforced those walls wherever necessary. At this stage, Thomas was keen not to engage Michael's loyalists. He didn't want to risk his men in battle, as he knew that large numbers would be needed if he was to outlast the emperor. So he began gathering men in the Thracesion theme, and prepared to hug the coast before crossing the Hellespont. Hopefully, the men of the Obsikion would not engage them. No one seems to have known how the European troops would react to the ensuing battle. The new themes established by Nicephorus were not courted by Michael. He didn't really want any more mouths to feed when the siege began, nor were they cutting-edge professional soldiers. More significant were the ships of the theme of Hellas, or those which served Thessalonica. They might make a difference. At this stage, though, Thomas avoided them. His navy made their way cautiously into the Aegean, only capturing the islands necessary to safeguard their route. This included the island of Skyros, where Gregory, Leo's nephew, was being held. He was freed and promoted to be admiral of the fleet, presumably because of the PR value of having the murdered emperor's nephew support Thomas's campaign to avenge him. As Thomas's army advanced carefully north, Michael began to worry what might happen if the Slav did enter the Obsikion and capture the Asian suburbs of the capital. Strategically bad, yes, but psychologically, it could be an even greater blow. For living on the Bithynian shore was Theodore and his iconophile supporters. If Michael's position depended on the elites backing the devil they knew, then it was very important that no one influential fell into Thomas's hands. What if the Slav were to use Theodore as an ambassador to persuade men to abandon the sitting regime? Michael ordered the iconophiles to come to the capital and join the soon-to-be-besieged. Theodore was apparently happy to return home. Probably he knew that as Leo's avenger, Thomas was unlikely to be in favour of the icons. There is much debate amongst historians about whether the icons were an issue in the Civil War. 
if Thomas was claiming to be Constantine the Sixth, then in theory he was an iconophile. He'd also been crowned by the Patriarch of Antioch, who was a defender of Irene's council. But on the other hand, Thomas was a friend of Leo's and a man of the Anatolicon, the supposed hotbed of anti-icon sentiment outside of the Tachmata. So, as usual, there is no clear answer, and the historians I find most convincing believe the icons were not really a pressing issue, either for Thomas or for the men who supported him. By November, Thomas's army had reached Abydus and prepared to cross at the same spot which Maslama had chosen a century earlier. In the meantime, Michael had raced out of the capital and made a quick tour of his Thracian suburbs. He implored the local garrisons to hold out against the invaders and stay loyal to him. But once Thomas's army was safely across the waters, the Thracian towns threw open their gates without a fight. It's entirely possible that the Thracians were simply no fools and had no interest in suffering. But historian Warren Treadgold suggests that the people of Thrace were loyal to Leo's memory. Leo had of course brought peace to the region and spent imperial funds helping to rebuild it. Furthermore, the local Slavs, including those from beyond the border, seemed to have offered assistance to Thomas, hoping that a man who shared their ethnicity would reward them handsomely. Though this part of the plan had gone smoothly, Thomas soon received bad news. He'd left Constantius in charge of the troops who'd remained behind in Anatolia. In a skirmish with Olbianus's men, Constantius had fallen into a trap and been killed. His head was forwarded to Michael, who then sent it on to Thomas. Brushing this aside, Thomas elevated another subordinate to be his colleague and heir. Allegedly, this man was a monk who already bore the regal name Anastasius. As you'll recall, Control of the sea was a key part of the Battle of 717. When the Arabs attempted to enter the Bosphorus, Leo III threw the full weight of the Imperial Navy at them. He was desperate to prevent them from fully encircling the city. So it's slightly surprising that Michael ordered his fleet to stay in their harbours and leave Gregory alone as he approached. The great chain was once again pulled across the inlet, but Gregory's unmolested ships broke it and sailed up the Golden Horn. They were able to moor themselves near the mouth of the river, not far from the walls of Lachernae. Why would Michael allow them this opportunity? I suppose there was a big difference in scale between Maslama's invasion and Thomas's the Arabs probably had over 600 ships bearing down on the Marmara. So Leo III knew he had to disrupt them at the first opportunity or risk being overwhelmed. Whereas if Thomas had, say, 100, Michael may have considered that it was better to let their plan unfold and keep his powder dry for the right moment. Remember that Maslama could also threaten to cut off Anatolia from the capital, something Thomas just didn't have the resources to do. So Michael may have felt confident that as long as his navy remained untouched, 
he could outlast any siege on land. What he risked, though, was that the sight of enemy ships so close to the capital would unnerve his defenders or undermine the resolve of his administration. Certainly, this was Thomas's best chance of victory. With winter fast approaching, Thomas led his army up to the walls and linked up with his fleet. This was the crucial moment. If he could just scare the soldiers on the wall, if he could just get someone to unlock a gate, then this could all be over quickly and he wouldn't have to risk assaulting those most intimidating of defences. The sources claim that Thomas had 80,000 men. That's the same number the Avars were said to have had and the same number Maslama led. So it, it was almost certainly not that many, but the Slav clearly commanded at least double, if not more, than the troops that Michael could call on. But despite the impressive horde facing them, the defenders jeered the usurper as they saw him. Those inside the city had made their choice. Michael had been in office almost a year now. Their fate was linked to his. No one was going to open the gates, and no one panicked. Young Theophilus, Michael's son, led a procession of clergy along the walls, holding a piece of the true cross and the clothes of the Virgin Mary, while singing the liturgy. Taking a deep breath, Thomas prepared his men for an attack on the walls. Michael set up his command post on some elevated ground near the Vlachianai church as the Slav prepared a triple assault. Thomas would lead the main thrust against Vlachianai, the northernmost point along the walls. It was the same spot which Crum was planning to attack, as these walls were smaller and less sturdy than those built in the 5th century. Anastasius drew the short straw and would attempt to scale these further south. The sea walls were, in theory, the most vulnerable of all. They were also later Byzantine constructions and had just the single circuit. Gregory would take these on with his ships. With December days away, Thomas's military charged forward and met the same fate that so many invaders did. Michael's defenders pelted them with missiles, preventing them from being able to properly deploy their catapults and rams, while the normally placid Golden Horn was whipped up with winter winds which pushed the fleet hither and thither, unable to form a coherent attack at sea. Thomas called a halt to proceedings and abandoned any further attack. He set up a formal siege across the lengths of the walls, and retired to one of the suburban palaces for the winter. His men did not suffer like Muslamas did. Though the days were cold and inhospitable, the people of Thrace were on their side. They offered their homes and their ovens, and the besiegers made it to the new year without having to eat their own excrement. This is the point where you can tell that Thomas's cause meant more to his men than the average usurpation. It must have occurred to many of them, as they stared up at the imposing legacy of Theodosius II, 
that they would never survive an attempt to scale them. Yet they remained loyal. There were no mass defections, nor would there be, even as the year 822 unfolded with little good news for their project. When spring arrived, round two would be another bloody failure. Thomas decided to focus all his land forces on the Vlachirnai section. As they were ready to launch, Michael appeared on the walls alongside his defenders. He yelled out to those nearest that anyone who abandoned Thomas right now would be given amnesty. The message bubbled along the lines, but was interpreted by many as a sign that the sitting emperor was desperate. Thomas had obviously done a good job keeping morale high, and suggesting that one last push and they'd all be enjoying races at the Hippodrome. So Michael's offer seemed like it came from a man afraid that his enemy was about to succeed. On the contrary, Michael was preparing a counterattack. The offer was win-win for him. If men did defect, great. If they were lulled into a false sense of security, also great. As Thomas's men began their attack, the Tachmata came bursting out of the gates and hacked away at their adversary. Meanwhile, the Imperial fleet finally sailed out of its harbours and bore down on Gregory's ships. Thomas's fleet was attempting to create a stable base from which their catapults could clear the walls of defenders and eventually ladders position to allow marines to scale them. In order to achieve this, ships had been tethered together. Michael's fleet now bore down on those immobile hulks and smashed them. On land, Thomas's troops fell back, regrouped, and pushed the defenders back behind the walls. But at sea, real damage was done. Although Gregory got his warships away safely, the loss of the tethered ships was a blow, and several of their crews decided to jump to shore and take Michael up on his offer. This was the first major visible setback for Thomas's cause. His army remained surprisingly stable, but Gregory's nerve had been broken. Apparently, Leo's nephew began drinking heavily and prepared to desert. His wife and children were in Michael's care, and so he hoped to switch sides and be reunited with them. There would be no way to get through Thomas's blockade, so he escaped with his crew into Thrace. There he hoped to rally resistance to Thomas and win Michael's gratitude. But the Slav broke off a portion of his men and snuffed out Gregory's counter-revolt that summer. Somehow, Thomas was able to spin this to the themes of Greece as a victory over Michael. The Western themes were, of course, cut off from Constantinople, and therefore received their news bulletins exclusively from Thomas. So they were told that the invaders had defeated the capital's troops on land and at sea, and that anyone who offered assistance for the final climb over the walls would be richly rewarded. The themes of Hellas and Thessalonica decided to throw in their lot with the winning side, i.e. Thomas's. Ships sailed up the Aegean into the Sea of Marmara and began unloading supplies at the Hebdomon, the same spot where Maslama had been resupplied. This was a godsend to Thomas, who could demonstrate to his men that their cause was not lost. 
and he now had more ships than the Imperial fleet. If he could just hold them off, then his superior numbers might allow him to isolate a portion of the sea walls, lash ships together again, and climb into the city. But this potential was apparent to everyone. Michael had many of his ships stationed in the southern harbours of the capital, those whose waters were in the Sea of Marmara, in other words, only a few minutes, winds permitting, from the Hebdomen. The ships were loaded with liquid fire, and then set out to destroy the enemy. This time, the calm home waters of Constantinople proved a deadly pond, on which to pour incendiaries. The Greek sailors looked on in horror as flamethrowers ignited their ships and set the very ocean alight. Ships sank, men died, everyone fled. Some sailed home, some surrendered. Only a few broke and made for the Golden Horn, as they'd been instructed, to link up with the remainder of Thomas's fleet. This was a disaster for the Slav's cause. Yet still, his army would not abandon him. In almost every other rebellion, defections would have begun at this point. Clearly the walls couldn't be breached, clearly the navy was not strong enough, and yet the siege was maintained, and Thomas waited. The war had reached a strange kind of stalemate. Michael attempted a couple of sallies that summer, but his troops were beaten back by the much larger besieging force. We have to make guesses about what was going on in the minds of these men that kept them in the field, even as the situation seemed hopeless. It's a topic we'll return to later. Inside the city, Michael may have begun to become concerned. He would eventually run out of money, if not food, and if Thomas continued to display such endurance... Perhaps men in the city would get ideas about ending the siege on their own terms. Fortunately, he didn't need to read too far back in history to see the solution to his problem. He had men circumvent Thomas's siege lines and made contact with Omatak, the Bulgar Khan. Just as with Turval a century earlier, the Khan received news of the siege with interest. Again, he was in a position to consider the alternatives. While there was no evidence that Thomas would be an anti-Bulgar emperor, who knows? Whereas Michael was begging for aid. A grateful emperor is always handy, and Michael was in a position to be bargained with. We don't know what further concessions the Khan wanted, but increased trading opportunities seems likely. Between that and the opportunity to raid Thrace without repercussions was enough to secure his cooperation. The Khan gathered his men and rode south. This negotiation had taken some time, and so it wasn't until November that Thomas's rearguard spotted step riders kicking up dust in the distance. Recognising the danger, the Slav lifted the siege, ordered his men to turn around and form up to confront the Bulgars. The two sides met near the aqueduct of Valence as it ran north past Heraclea. 
the Bulgars did serious damage to Thomas's force, even though the much larger Roman army won the day and drove Omatag from the field. The truly bad news was that back at Constantinople, Thomas's fleet was left exposed by the withdrawal of the army, and they were forced to surrender to Michael. With the siege broken, so many of their comrades dead, and no fleet to take them home, men finally began to consider their options. Thomas's cause was surely over, but they didn't leave yet. The Slav gave the order for the troops to spend the winter in the towns of Thrace, presumably hoping that a warm bed for a few months would rekindle their interest in fighting for him. Over the winter, small companies of men did indeed defect to Michael. But amazingly, the majority remained loyal. From his headquarters at Arcadiopolis, Thomas continued to pump out the good vibes. Now that the sides were more even, Michael would be forced, by the dictates of honour, to come out and face them in the field. Thomas's men would defeat their enemy in open battle and march over their broken bodies to the empty gates of the capital. I'm sure there was fine rhetoric, but it would not prove to be enough. When spring came, Thomas took up position 30 miles west of the walls at the plain of Diabasis. Michael waited until May, by when he'd shipped contingents of the Obsikion and Armeniacon to bring his numbers up to parity. Only then did he leave the city to face his destiny. Thomas could not afford a war of attrition. Even a bloody victory might give Michael an advantage, because at least he could retreat behind the walls, where Thomas could not follow. No, the Slav needed total victory, a slaughter which would flatten the Tachmata and leave Michael either exposed physically or clearly lacking God's favour. So he instructed his men to form up, and after the early exchanges, to simulate a rout. The imperial forces would charge forward, lose cohesion, and then at a prearranged signal, Thomas's army would wheel around and cut them off. He was hoping that this strategy would take advantage of the confidence of Michael's army and use it against them. But things did not play out that way. Thomas's troops routed as they'd been advised to, but Michael's men did not rush forward in pursuit. When the men of Anatolia turned and saw that their enemy were advancing in close formation, they panicked and began fleeing for real. Thomas's luck had finally run out, and his army dispersed into Thrace. Again, signalling the strange loyalty which Thomas inspired, his loyalists still held out. Thomas returned to Arcadiopolis, and Michael followed him, but other troops made it to Heraclea and to the nearby towns of Bysia and Panium. Once safe behind stone walls, they refused to surrender. Many men out in the field did, but those who'd reached safety hung on 
for months. The now almost undisputed emperor made the decision to remain lenient and magnanimous. Michael recognized that he needed to win over his subjects, and so wasn't about to begin his uncontested reign by assaulting cities. He made a show of not wanting to spill any more Christian blood, and simply set up a static siege around Arcadiopolis. For five months his men sat out in the summer sun, waiting for the rebels to give in. First, the besieged sent out unserviceable animals to preserve the food supply. Then they pushed out the old and disabled soldiers. Then their horses starved, and they ate them. Soldiers from the other towns nearby even attempted to break through the blockade and free Thomas. Over in Anatolia, his friends directed an Arab raid toward the Bosphorus in the hope that Michael would be forced to break off the siege and come running. All to no avail. Finally, in mid-October, Thomas's men agreed to hand him over in exchange for a pardon. Their request was granted. Thomas was brought to Michael. The emperor put his foot on his defeated opponent's head and forced the Slav to say, Have mercy on me, true emperor. But little mercy was forthcoming. Thomas had his hands and feet cut off and was then impaled. Soon afterwards, Bizia surrendered on the same terms and Anastasius suffered a similar fate. Still, Heraclea and Panium held out until February 824. A huge earthquake rocked the area and the walls of Panium collapsed. But the Heraclean garrison still refused to give in until the fleet arrived and landed soldiers on the seaward side of the town. By March, Michael could finally return in triumph to the capital. He displayed his prisoners in the Hippodrome, but only executed the foreign troops. He kept his word to the Romans, releasing the lower ranks back to their homes and exiling the more senior officers. This was not the end of the matter, though. Parts of Anatolia were in anarchy. With the empire's military tied down in Thrace for two years, Thomas's supporters had become accustomed to power and freedom. With their man dead, and only punishment and confiscations to look forward to, a number of them turned rogue. Several garrisons simply locked themselves up in the towns that they'd occupied and raided the surrounding countryside. Others turned to brigandry and raped and pillaged villages across the land. The headquarters of the Kivuriotone fleet refused to follow Michael's orders and had to be put down by the Imperial Navy. Michael could hardly trust the soldiers he was sending home to take on this police action, so he had to adopt various interesting practices to restore order. Several officials were bribed to lock the gates on their rebel soldiers when they were out raiding. The malcontents would then be forced to roam the countryside, where eventually they'd run into loyal troops. 
In an amusing story, Imperial agents got a peasant musician to walk around the walls of the town of Saniana singing a song. The lyrics containing strong hints that the resident bishop would be handsomely promoted if he turned on the soldiers and barred the gates. He got the message. So finally, the civil war between Michael of Amorium and Thomas the Slav came to an end. Three and a half years of disorder and dismay. In the end, no one seems to have come out of it with much credit. Thomas had failed. God, it seems, did not want to avenge Leo's murder. But nor did he wish to cheer on Michael, apparently, because instead of delivering a swift or triumphant victory for his reigning vice-regent, he allowed the whole empire to turn its hatred on the man from Amorium before letting him claim his tainted laurels. As Warren Treadgold put it, when God gave no clear sign and the empire continued to suffer, the suspicion grew that neither side was really in the right, which in dynastic terms was perfectly true. So Thomas failed, Michael only just succeeded. Even Leo, the seemingly innocent party in all this, had been diminished. He had claimed that iconoclasm was the right way forward, but God was only grudging in his support for that idea. Michael was distinctly ambivalent about the issue, and no one was championing the new policy with any enthusiasm. Next episode, things get even worse for Byzantium. The cream of the empire's army had just about survived the civil war, either resting inside the capital or surrendering in the field. But the navy had been decimated. Never once to overinvest in the seas, the Romans will be caught out as Muslim attacks on two of their largest islands will go unanswered. I should perhaps also aim yet another kick at the already worn ribs of the former emperor Nicephorus. If he had returned triumphant from Plisca and been more patient with the Bulgars, could Byzantium have avoided all of this misery? Finally today, what about Thomas the Slav? Should we mark him down as one of the great losing generals in Roman history? A tragic figure, perhaps, like Maurice or Constance II. He was, after all, a, a great Roman who inspired so many to believe in his cause. Or was he a filthy liar? A chancer? A spy? A Muslim pretending to be a Christian? Was he even a Slav? Was his name even Thomas? Who was Thomas the Slav? What am I talking about? A short time after the war ended, Michael wrote to Louis the Pious, King of the Franks. He wanted to greet his fellow sovereign formally. He wanted to explain the official position regarding the icons, and he wanted to explain the events of the Great Civil War, which had temporarily cut communications between the two great Christian empires. 
So here's what Michael told the Franks had happened. Thomas was a young man looking to make his name in Constantinople back in the 790s. But he seduced his patron's wife, and when the adultery was discovered, he fled for his life. He ended up in the Caliphate, where he lived for about 25 years, during which time he abandoned his religion, presumably joining in the worship of the infidels. He also convinced them that he was Constantine VI. With the end of the civil war in the Caliphate, Thomas's masters had finally given him an army and sent him to Romania. He would, of course, make the empire subordinate to the caliphate if he succeeded. The army he brought with him was an international coalition featuring Saracens, Persians, Armenians, Caucasians, and all the rest. He won over the men of the themes with bribes and threats and invaded the empire during the reign of Leo. It was Leo who faced this alarming external invasion, suffered defeat, and was murdered in a palace coup. Michael was asked to step into the breach, which he did. The rest of the story was much as I've told you, except that the Bulgars offered to attack Thomas voluntarily, and Michael declined because of his fervent desire not to spill Christian blood. Omatag, the rascal, invaded anyway, and then Michael marched out to win the day. A similar version was dispatched to the provinces, as an official account of the war, and apparently it was turned into a long iambic poem entitled Against Thomas. Now, I have presented to you one version of this story as the truth, and Michael's letter as the lie. But there are many historians, far more learned than I, who disagree. You see, most of the historians writing in the centuries which followed believed Michael's version. It's only through one dissenting voice and the usual detective work that we arrive at the events that I've just described. The question then comes down to whose version of events seems more credible. One of the cases against the version I've presented centers around the potential for a misunderstanding in that story about Vardan Turkus. If you'll recall, three of Vardan's bodyguards were Leo, Michael, and Thomas. But the suggestion is that that Thomas was actually a different man, possibly a fellow Armenian. The later apocryphal story about a seer telling this group that two of them would be emperor and two would come close was made up by someone who mistook that Thomas for Thomas the Slav. If true, that removes Thomas from the 803 rebellion and could place him in the caliphate. An exile biding his time, perhaps suggesting to anyone who'd listen that he was Constantine the Sixth. Again, what might back up Michael's version of events is this claim to be Irene's son. After all, if Thomas had been serving in the army for the past 20 years and second in command of the Anatolikon for the last seven, then any claim to be Constantine would have been instantly dismissed. Too many people would have known otherwise for this rumour to have gained any credence. So the imposter Thomas, claiming to be Constantine, invades the empire with his foreign mercenary army. 
it's this band of non-Romans who form the core of Thomas's campaign. So the resilience and never-say-die attitude they displayed was hardly evidence of anti-Michael or pro-Thomas sentiment. It was just the obvious self-interest of foreign men who had nowhere they could run to. The arguments back and forth are fascinating, but I've given you the version I find more convincing. Michael's version of events is just too convenient. It absolves him of all blame while presenting his victory as being over largely foreigners rather than Romans. All very neat and tidy. I also don't think we have any clue how seriously that rumour about being Constantine VI was taken. All sides seem to agree that Thomas was crowned in Antioch, but if he was seriously pretending to be Constantine, then he was already emperor and would have no need for this ceremony. Nor do I think a largely foreign army is convincing. The themes all got on board so fast and so readily, it seems doubtful they would have swung behind a pretender leading an invading force. Warren Treadgold's arguments convince me that because Thomas declared himself emperor immediately upon hearing of Leo's death, many in Anatolia simply considered Thomas their new leader and Michael the murdering usurper. It was much harder from this position to consider defection. It's also interesting that Thomas was executed out in Thrace rather than being brought in chains to the Hippodrome. If he'd been akin to a foreign invader, then why not display him? Whereas if he was a dangerous source of unrest, better to get rid of him here. The speed of these events also explains why Michael could plausibly claim that Thomas had rebelled against Leo and not him. Again, in a largely illiterate world, no one outside of his control was keeping records that could easily disprove him. Michael's bulletins were not intended to convince Thomas's partisans of his version of events. They were designed to persuade all those influential, literate men who hadn't been involved or hadn't been clear on what was taking place. As the emperor suspected, later historians looked at these official documents and assumed that they were telling the truth. What Michael did was no more deceitful than typical imperial propaganda. Leo, before him, sent out the word that he had wounded Crum during his assassination attempt and that the Khan's death was a direct result of this. History is written by the victors, unless we have enough evidence to suspect their point of view. On this occasion, I think we do. There remains a good deal of mystery about who Thomas was and what moved his supporters to battle the capital for so long. We'll never know for sure. Next week, we return to Constantinople to follow the flow of history as it moves through Michael and his family. Thank you again to worldpercussion.net for the sound effect and to you for listening. <laughs>